Welcome back to the IPS RSIS Conference on Identity. We will now proceed to our second panel discussion. To our online audience, please submit your questions via the Zoom Q&A panel that appears at the bottom of your screen. The moderator of this panel is Dr. Carol Soon, Senior Research Fellow and Head of Society and Culture at IPS. Dr. Soon, over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Jeannie. Um, welcome, everyone. Thank you for staying with us. Uh, just a quick recap. I know we've had a morning full of very, very rich discussions and without oversimplifying you know, what has been discussed, I think we can kind of encapsulate the discussion so far, maybe using three Cs. Um, one is we see the counter-narratives to what we call traditional identities and traditional identity markers. And two, the second C really is the increasing contestations and conflicts. And note that these contestations and conflicts, like what um, Prof. David Chan had earlier mentioned, do not necessarily happen only within groups, but also uh, between groups, but also within groups and within self. The third C really is the um, emphasis that we have heard through the morning, the need for more conversations um, and more spaces that facilitate understanding and what Minister Wong had earlier said, facilitate trading. So what this panel, you know, um, this panel that's standing between you and lunch actually, will attempt to do is we will attempt to give the conceptual and the abstract a form. Uh, we will also try to make the conceptual and the abstract a bit more tangible, right? Hopefully we can do that by talking about um, the principles, uh, perhaps the conditions and maybe even the approaches that we can use uh, to engage with issues posed not only by um, old identities, but new identities and cross-cutting identities. So in order to do that, I have with me four fantastic panellists. Um, Aaron, Weiyu, Joel, Chiling. You all have their bio sent to you before the event, so I'll just do a super quick introduction. Now, Aaron is Deputy Secretary at the Ministry of Communications and Information. Um, he's certainly a man who wears many, many, many hats. Just one head, but many hats. Um, he's a poet. He's a volunteer teacher, and he's also a facilitator of interfaith dialogue. Now, Wei Yu is Associate Professor at the Department of Communications and New Media in NUS. She's also the Director of Civic Tech Lab, where she leads projects on youth engagement, online deliberation, and civic tech in different countries in Asia. Now, Joe is Managing Director of Xerox Media. He's also a very, very prolific content producer, whom I think, in my opinion, does an excellent job in breaking down very complex issues for young adult social media users. And we have also Ms. Chan Chiling. Chiling co-founded Better.sg, which is a tech for good charity that brings together many volunteers to develop digital tools for social good. So she is Chief Operations Officer and that's not even her day job. So thank you so much for joining me. Um, maybe I'll go to Aaron first. Now, Aaron, for a long, long time, um, the government has played the driver's role right, in bringing people together to discuss issues that society should tackle together. Um, but now we see such efforts no longer being the monopoly of the government. We see many more ground up and people sector led initiatives to attempt to try to bring people from very disparate backgrounds together. Like I mentioned earlier, you know, you wear many hats of which one of them is a facilitator of, you know, very tricky, sensitive issues such as interfaith, 
right, religion. So what would you say are some of the key considerations that we should heed right, when we try to bring people together to engage with one another and find the common ground that we have spoken of so many times this morning? Yeah. Thanks, Carol, and thanks to the IPS team as well for the very kind invite to, to join all of you here today. Um, you're very right, you know, the, the space for, for participation uh, has now grown quite significantly. And I wanted to start by saying that I really was very struck by something our, our Minister Wong said, you know, where he talked about the multiplicity of our identities as well as the fact that our policy and our environment are not static, right? We are a constant work in progress. I keep thinking of that wonderful phrase that children sometimes ask in the car, you know, are we there yet, right? Singapore is not there yet. And in a way, we are never there yet. That's partly why one of the, the volunteer groups that I work with, the, the Birthday Collective, in the theme for our book uh, that came out this year, we actually uh, themed it, are we there yet, right? So we had a whole bunch of people write essays about Singapore and how we are not quite there yet on a whole range of, of different um, issues. And I think this idea of not being there yet, right, coming especially from the, the constant flux that we're in, is exactly the kind of design uh, consideration that we need to, to think about um, as we, we go about kind of crafting conversations and crafting a space where people can participate more fully uh, in, in civic life. I wanted to highlight two stories here. Uh, which I thought would be would be useful, uh, just as we think about the, the lived reality, right? Because I think it's important for us to talk about concrete experiences and not just uh, broad abstractions. Um, the first is a is a experience uh, from one of the incidents uh, of facilitation that I was involved in. Um, it wasn't to do with faith in this case. It was a broad conversation about the future of Singapore, and I was I will never forget this experience because one of the participants, um, a woman of about maybe fifty plus years or so. Um, you know, she doesn't matter what race she was, because uh, I don't think it's relevant to the story. But what was very interesting was she stood up and, and she said, you know, as a homeowner, right, a homeowner in my mid-50s, I really want home prices to appreciate, right? I want housing prices in Singapore to appreciate because that means that the asset that I have will be one that is uh, increasing in its value. Mm -hmm. And then she said, but as a mother, right, with a son who is 22, 23 years old, I really want home prices to be as low as possible so that he'll get married and move out and find his own place uh, and then I'll have a bit more room for myself, right? And too much laughter uh, in, in, the, in the group. She was then a bit rueful about it because then she turned to some of the government folks who were there and she said, I don't know how you all do it, you know, because even in my head, I can't decide what I want. Um, I'm not sure how you all try and then balance the, you know, these different, um, as you might put it, uh, Carol, the conflicts within the, the, the person identity, right? Uh, how do we then manage those, those trade-offs and, and those, those contradictions? And I think one important thing, is when we say we want people to embrace their multiple identities, right, is that in these conversations, when we bring them together, we need to allow for the fact that they will need a space for these conflicting, contesting, and potentially contradicting identities to actually play themselves out. Uh, and a good facilitator of these, these uh, conversations will, I think, set up a space that is safe for someone to express those contradictions and not to feel that they need to be criticized or vilified in the process. This, I think, links very fundamentally to what Vanita was talking about in the earlier panel, right? When she said we need to have the privilege of not thinking about our identity markers, or she mentioned how she sometimes doesn't want to represent communities. That's exactly what we need to allow people to do. Having their, their own multiple identities means that each individual should not have to bear the burden of representing any particular group, but just bring their own complexities, right? Bring their own many hats, to use your phrase, uh, into the conversation uh, that they're in. 
This then leads to another quick point that I wanted to make, which is also linked to the point about multiple identities. Uh, because we need to also realize that in, when we set up these conversations, whether they're online, offline, um, whether they happen on a technological platform or whether they're in person, I think we need to allow for the fact that there is a range of motivations that people have when they turn up for conversations. Uh, in my own experience, I find that there are kind of three groups you know, who are kind of will like to get involved in these conversations. The first is what I like to call serial deliberators, right? People who will come to any session as long as it's about having a conversation with other people and deliberating an idea or a policy or a set of projects that, that they might want to get involved in. So whatever the topic is, they will be there because they enjoy participation and deliberation. Then there's what I like to call topical deliberators, people who will come on specific things that they care about. They might turn up for a deliberation on the environment, but they probably won't turn up uh, on, on another topic. Others will turn up on social causes, about the alleviation of poverty, or how to engage um, ethnic minorities, but they might not do other uh, topics. And that's fine as well, right? We need both of these sorts of groups to make for a rich uh, set of conversations. What I think we need to remember is there are also people out there who are non-deliberators. They don't want to be involved in any of these discussions, and they're quite happy to delegate the role of having these discussions to others who might be more civically minded who are, or who might be more active. Uh, some of my own family have said to me before, you know, when I invite them to conversations, they'll say, well, you carry on, Aaron, but we want to spend Saturday doing a few other things. Um, and I think that's okay too, right? Those are legitimate life choices to make. And those of us who design um, any kind of participatory or deliberative process need to remember that we need to create a space whereby all three of those groups would be welcome if they happen to show up. And maybe if we can entice the non-deliberators to just come out a little bit more, that might create a more inclusive space and a space where they then can also feel safe to air the views that they have, which I think will always add to the richness of the, the topic, uh, but which we need to entice them to, to get involved in a little bit. I'll stop there for now, but I think we can hopefully use some of this as a basis for the rest of our conversation and Q&A later on. No, thank you. Thank you, Aaron, for brief but yet very important points. Um, I think noted uh, the emphasis on creating a space that allow people to bring along their very different, not to say schizophrenic, no, aspects of themselves. We are yeah. all... Uh, to a certain degree, maybe slightly schizophrenic. Yeah, we, we need to have yeah. the courage of our own contradiction. Correct. Yeah. And also, regardless of pl platform, to always remember that we have different types of people who are different groups of people who are able uh, or interested to participate in deliberation to different extents, yeah. right? Now, um, Wei Yu, I've known you for a long time, and I've always known you as a deliberative scholar or someone who studies deliberation whether it's done face-to-face -face, uh, or online, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe just to unpack it a little bit, because deliberation itself seems like a very heavy academic jargon, um, without oversimplifying or overgeneralizing, essentially, I think it's a process, correct me if I'm wrong, it's a process where we bring people from very, very different backgrounds together uh, through a curated special uh, design process where they are exposed to, say, information, uh, to the opinions of one another before arriving at an informed position pertaining to an issue, right? Whether it's identity or not. Now, the word deliberation, yeah. to be very honest, is commonly, it, it conjures connotations of rationality, mm -hmm. right? But as we have seen, um, as we have heard, and we have also seen from the discussions in panel one, there's a fair bit of um, emotionality, right? Emotional rawness. When we want to talk about something as intimate and as primal as identity. 
So I would just like to hear from you, how much room do you think there is for deliberation when it comes to issues that relate to identity? Okay, thanks, thanks Carol. Uh, first, uh, thank you for the invitation and thanks IPS for holding such an uh, important discussion. Well, uh, you know, uh, both Aaron and Carol here are uh, practitioners of deliberation in the country, pioneer uh, practitioners. So uh, Aaron just uh, talked about all different kinds of uh, deliberation and people coming to deliberation, right? So uh, there are indeed um, a different types of deliberation. Right. So my first point here is to say uh, deliberations, uh, are, there are different types. Some are more suitable for uh, certain kinds of issues and uh, suitable at certain stages at, of the issue development. Okay. So for identity deliberation, um, I would like to introduce maybe two types of deliberation that are relevant to identity dis discussions. The first one is deliberation within social groups. So this morning, uh, we heard Minister Wang talking about Roman citizenship and how that transcends the tribalism that used to be in the history, right? Um, you know, uh, if you look at uh, the origin of the idea of deliberation, that was uh, from Habermas's uh, public sphere. And if you look at the historical in instances of public sphere, um, they were German coffee houses, French salons, American uh, town hall meetings. But these instances uh, back then were not that inclusive as um, uh, the minister has pointed out about the Roman uh, citizenship, right? There were certain social groups who were never included in these public spheres, right? These are uh, women, right? Working classes were excluded. But you look at the public discussions nowadays, how did these uh, social groups manage to somehow insert their arguments into the public sphere? Right? and somehow changed the public sphere. Well, historians have found that, you know, they started from smaller, safer versions of deliberation among themselves, right? So not only that uh, they shared uh, their personal experience, Rabinita just shared her experience, actually it resonated with my personal experience a lot. I look Chinese, but I'm an immigrant. I'm immediately identified by my hawker center anchors and he said, I'm not Singaporean, right? At the moment I order my food, right? So I resonate with these experiences and it's the starting point probably to emphasize with a certain social group, right? And uh, in this uh, safer spaces, people can be very emotional, share their emotions, that's totally fine. Um, but historians also told us that um, it's not just that, right? Uh, these safer these deliberation spaces went beyond these emotions sharing and started to function as the background against which the formation and enactment of social identities become possible, right? And moreover, uh, these safer deliberation spaces became foundations upon which these social groups can reach out, right? Speak out to the larger society. Um, so uh, the three commentators just now in the previous session, they are doing exactly that reaching out, right? They are now sharing their experiences to uh, members who don't necessarily come from their social groups, right? So this comes to my second type of deliberation. That's deliberation among social groups, right? Um, maybe you think that um, when we deliberate among social groups, we should just put everybody you know, in the same room and ask them to discuss, right? Well, let me share with you a study. A study my graduate school friend Magdalena did many years ago in Poland. 
So uh, she put Polish people who strongly advocate for the rights of LGBTQ community and those who oppose those rights into one room and ask them to discuss, right? Um, so uh, her original words here, who these participants were. They were recruited from organizations working towards sexual minority rights, such as Polish Campaign Against Homophobia, and from conservative, re religious, and far-right organizations, such as Young Conservatives. So the deliberation was uh, moderated by the researchers. Then guess what happened after the deliberation? Polarization, right? Mm. So th those people who strongly supported the rights became even more positive. Those who opposed it become even more negative, right? So what we learned from this uh, study, we learned from her lessons. So when we tried to run uh, the first online deliberation in the country in 2015, um, we deliberately made some choices, design choices, right? So first, we ran an online forum. We didn't really run face-to-face -face, uh, discussions. Uh, considering the diversity, right, the heterogeneity, uh, the group of people who are joining uh, this deliberation. We just wanted to avoid face-to-face, -face, maybe direct confrontations uh, through using the online platforms, right? Um, the second deliberate so-called design choice was the topic we chose to invite people to deliberate on, right? We didn't really put people with extremely different views into one room and to discuss an issue that seems to only concern one side's benefits, right? So we chose a very broad topic, the population issue that influences everybody in the country, right? Um, so when we, it comes to um, deliberation among social groups, here is an idea, right? Why don't we uh, invite people to talk about or deliberate on broad topics that really, really influence everyone and everyone's daily life, right? Or to use, uh, again, Venita's words, consequential differences, right? That means, um, for instance, uh, the pandemic, when we discuss the policies regarding the pandemic, um, you know, it, was, it will be just become very natural for those uh, socially, economically disadvantaged groups to start talking about their experiences um, under the new policies of Q home-based learning, you know, uh, working from home, right? How did they uh, not be able to afford uh, sta stable access, right, to the internet, to computers? Or shall we, when we discuss, you know, future-looking issues like artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence influences everybody. But when we discuss the issue, it will probably particularly relevant when the AI was modeled after traditional stereotypes against the social, certain social groups, right? So we can use this broader, maybe, topics as opportunities to discuss consequential differences. So I'll stop there, right? Thank you uh, for, for asking the mm. questions. Thank you, Wei Yu. Um, thank you for providing those very, very concrete suggestions, you know, on how can we improve the design uh, where we can get people together um, maybe perhaps put aside or forget about their innate differences, um, talk about issues that may actually then um, bring them closer together and help them better understand one another. Now, Joe, social media, we've heard again a fair bit of mentions of it through the morning. Um, it has commonly been associated, especially in recent years, with phrases such as culture wars and identity politics. It has also been said 
you know, um, and I think rightly so in many instances, to exacerbate differences among communities. Um, so Minister cautioned, right? Uh, and I think it was a very important message that we should not use social media, quote unquote, to galvanize hate and to cancel one another. Now you have been, you know, making quite a brave foray into the wow wow world, wow wow west of cyberspace, right? So I would like to hear from you um, your views on the role of social media in perhaps building bridges uh, between um, groups, especially on issues such as those that we are discussing today. Sure. Uh, firstly, I'd like to thank IPS for inviting me to, to join this panel. I think uh, looking at all the people around me, I'm just like in awe, first of all, <laughs> because I exist on the social media space, right? So uh, people that I usually come across and, and work with are very different from this environment. So I acknowledge that, but I want to say thank you for, for allowing me to speak here. Um, Second, I, I just want to say that it's very exciting to be having a, a conversation about the conversations that are happening on social media, right? And I do think that a lot of these conversations uh, have, of course, been made on social media and will continue to be, to be made, continue to be done on social media. Um, throughout uh, today's uh, discussions, I feel like a lot of times uh, the, the phrase, like, you know, creating spaces has been brought up, right? Um, I feel, perhaps maybe because like I've, I've lived through the growth of social media, that spaces actually have already been created, or at least the platforms have been created. Um, so perhaps rather than, can, than focusing on creating spaces, perhaps we can start, now start shifting our perspective to working within creative spaces. Um, so that's where I'm at, you know, because today we see how social media allows us to have tools that are just so wide ranging, and it's really about just using those tools available to then facilitate conversations that we want to have. Um, personally, I, ident I, ident I identify as a zillennial, so someone who's sandwiched between the millennial generation and Gen Z, just that little like, tiny margin, you know. Um, that means that like, I've, I, I and my generation grew up with social media. Um, we, we were that first generation that really adopted social media uh, when we were going, growing up, right, and then really see it grow into this extension of who we are as individuals. Um, and we really now see like Gen Z, you know, having social media becoming an extension of who they are and, and using, that plat um, using social media platforms as, an, uh, as a way to express themselves. Um, a lot of the times uh, we resort to social media just to air our thoughts, right? Whether it's a, a quick tweet that no, no one really gives second thought about, whether it's IG stories now that's so, you know, ephemeral, right? You can just post it without, without second thought. Um, that has now become that culture whereby we are so ready to share. And um, it's not, I, I, and I understand why perhaps, you know, people from um, older generations might be a bit shocked. They're like, oh, why are young, young people today are so willing to share things that like my generation perhaps won't be so open to sharing in the past. Um, and I believe it's really because like it's been this normalized behavior or, or culture whereby we use social media to to reach out to friends, to communicate with friends, and also to share our opinions. You know, we, we see it as a diary of sorts rather than a, a, a stage to, to um, uh, express ourselves. Of course, along the way, then we realize that, hey, because it's on a public platform, it is, after all, a stage. You know? And then we see the progress and, and, and the growth of how social media can be used. So, so that's one. Um, so that's on one level, right? Using social media as a, a way to express ourselves. And then on the next, on another level is that I think that because it is such a, um, 
like in social media is adopted worldwide, we really have been uh, influenced by global movements that really stemmed from social media. Uh, I mean, over the last few years, we have seen things like the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge. We have seen, you know, Black Lives Matter. We have seen hashtag Me Too. Even recently, we have seen like Free Britney. You know, the, all these movements came about from social media. Um, and we've really seen, and, and it has been discussed in the earlier panel as well, like the, the how social media um, has been able to uh, facilitate like the consolidation of different thoughts and ideas and opinions and also sharing of these ideas. Um, I think that because social media has allowed for the amplification of lived experiences of, of, of people uh, and, and allowing for, you know, this uh, promotion of um, uh, like uh, opinions of, of, of people, I think that then uh, we, we've seen how we've then adopted that in Singapore and then facilitated conversations here in Singapore as well. Um, I want to note that uh, youth flat movements or youth citizenry or uh, youth activism, activism isn't actually new. It's been around for very long. What's really new is like social media tools. Um, and, and, and now we've really seen how uh, the generation of like, you know, savvy social media people have like used these tools to, to kind of like um, uh, push forward discussions that they want to have as a generation. So yeah, and, and I think that um, it goes beyond just youth. On, on social media, you know, because we've seen how um, discussions that have been brought about using social media have like spilled over to the real world, like and it, and it goes beyond like generations as well. Like for example, um, uh, when we when we saw uh, the the um, the cases of um, you know um, the uh, PA and uh, the 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 cutout uh, saga. Uh, those spill over to, to real-world conversations where like I've had discussions with like my parents, my relatives as well, and I bring across you know, ideas that, have, that I've exchanged and, and learned from social media and, and discussing from their perspective like how things are. And I, th and I, and I realized that having conversations with friends like this is something that also happens across the board. Like a lot of us um, have conversations that started from social media, bringing it into our real world. So that's something that um, I find um, quite meaningful as well. Um, lastly, like I, I, in preparation for this panel, actually, I was, you know, kind of like looking at the idea of people with influence on social media because I do think that because we are on social media, we do have to understand the dynamics of social media at play. Um, and I was looking at one of the, the studies done by uh, a sociologist called Damon Cantola, and he brought about this idea that actually it is. Um, his research shows that like influencers or, or people with influence on social media are the ones who actually amplify differences between people. Um, I don't know if that applies to Singapore, but that is something that perhaps um, I find a, a little bit of truth in, you know, based on what I observe. Um, so he brings about the idea of like uh, social media, uh, the, the uh, a society that perhaps is um, centralized versus egalitarian uh, in nature, whereby one allows for um, uh, the latter allows for exchange of ideas in, in a flat hierarchy, whereas the former, which is the social media world that we live in, uh, allows for like certain individuals or in our, in, in, I think in Singapore's cases, like individuals who also run pages, for example, um, to dictate like how uh, certain conversations go about. So I do think that um, perhaps in this discussion later on, we can discuss like, you know, uh, this as well, because uh, that is something that I find, you know, highly relevant in Singapore as well. Yeah. 
Thank you, Joe. Thank you so much for your comments. Um, now we come to Chiling, right? Uh, the last but certainly not the least. Um, we talk about social media, but really, you know, technology is a lot more than social media, right? Um, and we, we talk about the role of technology, but also say, you know, the opp opportunities, limitations, and sometimes unintended consequences. Now, given the work that you do at better.sg and really the objective of this panel, which is to try to concretize the abstract and the intangible. Um, what opportunities do you think tech holds for progressing debates and discussions relating to identities? Thank you, Carol. Um, well, first of all, really a great pleasure to share the stage, um, especially during this time um, with, with these esteemed panelists. Um, well, as Karen mentioned, I volunteer at better.sg. It is a platform, a tech for good charity uh, that brings volunteers from different backgrounds, different disciplines together. And in, in many ways, it is a platform not just for discourse, because very rarely do our conversations end there. Uh, it actually goes one step further to action. And by action, we mean um, building digital tools and products that can advance conversations and inspire uh, productive conversation within our community. Uh, so what this looks like is oftentimes our volunteers would build products and put that out in the public sphere. Uh, the hope there is that we could engage intently, uh, intently and constructively with uh, people in the public and, and advance discourse through digital tools. Um, one such product uh, was an interactive fiction game called To Be You. Uh, to Be You was, was done by a, a team, a small team, um, that lets you experience life as somebody else. And the premise is very simple. What is it like to be you, to be another person who is vastly different from you? Um, the game invites users to step into the lives and shoes of characters that come from a different religious or racial background. So in our first uh, episode, the first story we published, um, it was the story of a, a Malay girl named Nadia. Uh, this, and the second story was uh, a feature of Aman Singh, uh, a fictional boy from a Sikh family uh, who is about to enter NS. And among the many decisions that he had to make, you know, from like how many uh, pairs of underwear he has to bring to NS, all the way to uh, should he, uh, you know, important decisions like should he wear his turban, among other things. And throughout the story, users were challenged to think about what choices they would make if they were these characters. Um, it was fascinating to really see conversations that emerged um, from many of these characters that we released. People found uh, that some lines or, or, or plots were, uh, were, were, were uh, you know, a problematic, right? Some, there were some portrayals or perspectives that people didn't agree with necessarily. Uh, to the point that I think at one point, the team had to rewrite one of the chapters of the story um, because some members in the community objected to the very idea of giving Aman, the fictional character, an option uh, to, to not keep his turban. And, and they were all very fair concerns that the team in, uh, respected and had uh, more consultations with the Sikh community um, on. And in the end, they found a compromise. And I thought it was a pretty brilliant compromise. They, the team rewrote the chapter. Aman himself uh, kept the turban, so he went to NS with the turban, um, but his sister and fiance didn't. 
um, and they, they had a thoughtful discussion within the game uh, about why and what that meant for them. Uh, so in this experimental way, interactive fiction uh, provides an opportunity for people to reveal um, where they may have differing perspectives or where they may be differing comfort levels um, on the choices that people do in reality make. Uh, and the story continues. It's we're only on the second character, um, that there are more to come. The hope is that through more of these experimental ways of engaging uh, with different identities, we can explore dilemmas and represent and cherish each other's lived reality, uh, even if we may not fully agree with uh, the choices that are, that are made. Um, I think a lot of what Joel was mentioning earlier, actually on, on social media being a common space, um, actually it's, it's something that really resonated with a lot of volunteers in Better.sg. You're right that in many ways, the platforms are already created. It's how then do we moderate participation and curate um, participation so that the outcomes of this course is, is a productive one that advances, um, uh, instead of you know, heightening differences, it advances understanding um, for each other. Something we learned from starting Data.sg is that there are many ways to engage in this, this course um, through listening, understanding, and communi communicating. Uh, engagement through speaking is one of them, but engaging through action can also be another. And I think there's a whole lot there that we can unpack um, and create uh, new products and digital tools that could help in that regard. So we could talk, for example, about role of linguistic differences uh, in identity formation, but we could also show up at a foreign worker dormitory and only then realize that the mobile application we built will be not usable because it was not translated for a Bengali foreign worker. Um, there's some very practical things that we would start to take notice when we start to take action. And one of our volunteers, for example, took notice that uh, in, amidst COVID, uh, there was uh, under provision of uh, you know, mental health care in certain foreign worker dormitories and, and realized that one of the gaps was actually translations. <laughs> it was not something out of the world, but um, she, she took the initiative to, to build a simple translation tool that was published online and helped medical professionals uh, to translate what they had to say to foreign workers. Um, so I think learning by doing forces us to pay a lot more attention um, to what matters in the here and now. Um, and it helps us make ourselves useful in a more tangible way. Um, so when we, uh, when we do come around to engage in discourses like this, it, as on this stage, uh, we are better informed with personal experiences and stories that are grounded in reality and shared experiences. So my personal hope is that many of these conversations that we have around identity in Singapore uh, can be characterized not just by exchanges in, in a verbal sense, but also curiosity, listening, and action. Um, and I think this can start with a very simple question, what's it like to be, to be you? Thank you, Chiling. Um, thank you for, you know, make us think about another way to engage, right? Because whenever we talk about engagement, conversations, instinctively we think about, like, like what you said, words. But here you are, you know, giving very um, rich illustrations of how we can actually do engagement, um, how we can actually uh, promote greater uh, empathy or understanding through action, right? So where, where action is a tool. You know, not, not, not just words. So I think this panel, I mean, thank you for all your um, insights. I think we have shared, we have covered quite a few 
important things, right? Um, essentially, the what's and the principles that we should think about. Maybe um, I'll first tackle the question of whom. So Aaron, when you were talking, or when you're speaking just now, you came up with a, a typology of um, three types yeah. of deliberators, right? You have your serial deliberators, your topical oh, deliberators, yeah. and non-deliberators, whom I think basically is the majority, right? I don't know. It's possible, but I'm gonna. I'll, I'll see if Wei Yudev ever does a study um, on this. It'd be lovely to see what the numbers actually are. But I suspect you're right. Yes. So, yeah. so the the thing is, you know, what can we do to entice right people who are non-deliberators? And I think based on research and also the kind uh, other kinds of studies we have done um, on different types of policy issues and what say Singaporeans choose to do or not do. Uh, to help solve that policy issue, people do not participate for um, myriad reasons. Um, oftentimes, it's because they think that it's a problem that the government is very capable to mm -hmm. solve um, because it has been so competent. So they leave it to the hands of policymakers and the government. Um, other times, it's clearly, like you said, no interest. But oftentimes, it's also because of the lack of what sociologists would call structural um, availability, right? They do not have the time, mm -hmm. they do not have the means, right, to participate in um, such programs, conversations, or initiatives. So then, what can we do to entice them? Because I think, Joe, this also has um, implications for the online space, right? You talk about social media influencers. Clearly, these are the people with um, greater competency and, and more resources. And we all know from the work that we have done, majority of social media users you know, tend to be passive consumers as opposed to active producers of content. Then again, kind of linked to Aaron's uh, point about the non-deliberators, how do we, you know, what can we do right, to bring in more people into the discussion? into a space, like you said, that has already been created. Maybe we can start with um, Aaron, Joe, and Chiling, Weiyu, if you have comments pertaining to this, please feel free. I think those are great questions, Carol. Let me start with two, two observations. Um, the first goes back to, you, know, you mentioned earlier that I wear many hats, right? Um, and I think that metaphor of the hats is important. Um, I would actually say that when we design some of these experiences, it's really important to create experiences that are welcoming to all the hats that the person has, and in a sense, the whole self, right? Hats alone is really about what we do, but who we are is really what the whole self is about. And I think we do need to design experiences that bring in that range. Uh, you're right, people do face structural um, obstacles and impediments sometimes, and, some, and we need to recognize that. Um, I've been involved in at least one set of citizen engagement processes, which were four weekends in a row. And with those, we thought it's such an important time investment, right? whole Saturdays basically, uh, four in a row. Uh, and we thought that it was important that people be compensated for some of that. We cannot compensate them the same way their jobs do. But you know, even a simple honorarium recognizes that people are giving time that they and they might need to have, use some of that to say get childcare, right? If they if they have children at home. And and I think the more we recognize that and and are able to to put in place structures that that give allowances for people to come and be part of the process, then the more inclusive the whole process can actually be, become. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's about paying people a salary necessarily because this is not a job, but it is about recognizing that their time is valuable as well. So I think in those structural instances, we do need to 
bring people in their whole selves by actually recognizing that they will need some support in, in certain instances. And they can always choose to waive that, that honorarium if they don't want it. Right? We, can, we can then find ways to have it donated somewhere or go somewhere else. But at least the offer is there so that people don't feel that if they can't find childcare or if they are actually working on a Saturday, that they must therefore be self-excluded from that, that whole process. So I think that's one key thing. The other thing is I am convinced that actually even the non-deliberators out there are actually interested in at least some aspects of policy, but they may not feel that you know, they will make a big difference by being part of the process. Uh, they may have a bias for action, and this may feel like a lot of no action talk only if they come into a, a process where there's a lot of discussion going. Um, and I think it's important, therefore, that we find ways to create opportunities to show that these discussions are not empty discussions. They are meant to lead to concrete, useful, tangible outcomes. Uh, and this links, I think, to what Chilling was talking about, right? that many people can bond over what uh, some people like to call the dialogue of action, even if they don't bond over the dialogue of words, right? You may disagree with someone on all aspects of politics, but you might agree with them that, well, we want to conserve a particular part of Sungai Bulo, right? Or we want to go and get the beach clean at East Coast Park. Uh, or we agree that climate change is happening. I mean, nowadays most people agree that climate change is happening, right? Um, and if we agree that that is the case, then maybe it doesn't matter whether we are, you know, brown or whatever shade of brown. We can come together and try and make Singapore a more sustainable, more green uh, and more um, environmentally friendly space. I think those are about doing things together rather than just talking about things. And that kind of action, if we can bring that in, right, bringing that bias for action into the work that we do, uh, that actually I think will create an even more welcoming space for certain types of people and they might feel that their time will therefore be more well spent uh, if they are part of these conversations that lead to outcomes rather than conversations that remain conversations although those can be very valuable in and of themselves mm. yeah. thank you Aaron yeah sure um, so I want to note first that like social media is incredibly accessible right and because of that then most people uh, would be able to then exist on social media and very quickly we can see how different communities form on social media. Yeah. So in that sense, um, it is then easier to identify members of a community and also then key opinion leaders within that community online. Yeah. Uh, so that's one way that, you know, for, I, I, I find it a benefit, right? So for example, if we want to have a conversation today about the environment, we know who to go to or where to look. And it's very, very easy and it's very fast. And that's something that social media can can allow us to, to, to facilitate. Um, so, so I see it as a, a directory of sorts, you know, like all these different communities and now so accessible within minutes, you can find different communities. Um, in terms of how we can uh, get a larger population of people to be more engaged and more involved, um, I would think uh, the answer simply lies in using tools uh, that social media provides that for, for to allow us to have engagement. Um, in that sense, basically meaning to say, yeah, and, and yes, I agree that like not everyone is willing to, to spend time, right? So to me, um, how I see it is to make sure that the barrier to entry for participation is placed as low as possible, you know? So I can bring from my personal experience, which was GE 2020. Um, and obviously I went into it like, uh, I, did, I, I didn't expect, you know, uh, the virality that came from it. I didn't expect the engagement that came from it. But what I found in hindsight, looking back and reflecting like, hey, what worked was really the fact that I used Instagram or at least the Instagram poll, Instagram story and the poll function on Instagram story, whereby one person just needs to tap, 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 tap on a platform that they're already on um, to give me, you know, their opinion on a certain topic. Um, for context, uh, uh, 
at the start of GE, I was just a regular social media user. By the time GE ended, uh, I had, I think, 12,000 more uh, uh, followers, and most of them are first and second time voters. So, and then the day after elections, I decided to hold like a very casual poll, you know, like, what do you guys think about like certain issues? Um, uh, and I think 5,000 people like responded. And uh, I, I did, I did. <laughs> Amazing, yeah. So, so to me, then after that, I, I, I compiled all the results into a PowerPoint presentation, right? Just because I mm. thought that, well, this is something unique. I probably will never experience something like this again. Um, Back then, it was just exciting, right? I was like, oh my gosh, like everyone's like talking about this. But then after that, I was like, hmm, I don't think this happens every day. So let, 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 let's take a look at why that happened, right? Like what were the, were, were the reasons as to why people were willing um, to, to, to discuss politics? Because to me, I grew up uh, with, with adults telling me, oh, actually, Singaporeans aren't very involved in politics. Singaporeans don't really care. Yet what I saw during GE 2020 was that a lot of people cared. And you know, we, we, we used to be told that like, youth are apathetic about like, um, poli uh, like policy making, about you know, politics in Singapore. Yet that's not what I experienced. You know? In fact, there were studies that showed that Singaporeans aren't involved. I'm like, hey, may, may, like, that's not what I felt but on, a, on a personal level. So I thought about it and I realized that it's really because um, uh, you bring you bring it to the passive audience and, and make it easy for them versus like bringing them on board um, to like a, a platform that you created. So another example that I can bring on would be um, the, the case whereby uh, a student, uh, a university student uh, 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 like pressed the eye of his girlfriend and then that created like this like uh, online discussion and everyone was not very happy with like the the the, the sentence that came out of it, and there was this like online, you know, um, um, uh, uh, anger that that were kid that came out from the entire case. Um, of course, existing on social media, I got to be exposed to so many different opinions, and a lot of them were very angry, right? And then came the opportunity to say um, to engage with like the National Youth Council on on this topic, right? So it was, uh, I believe, National Youth Council and MHA that that said like we want to hear what the young people think about this. So. I had access to thousands of people who were telling, like, messaging me and telling me, ah, oh, no, 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 like, you know, like, oh, this is my opinion, and then I, and then I message them and I go, hey, here's an opportunity to talk to to the people who will affect policy, right? Do you want to come? It's free. Just need one hour of your time. We we have it on Zoom. Zoom. You can do it from home. You know, they don't have to travel out. And they go, doana, doan. I'm like, why? Why? Like, you just spend, you literally spend one hour talking to me. You, you literally spend one hour typing your opinions to me. Yet, when you have the opportunity to speak to people in positions of power, for example, like, you don't want to. And they said, I just don't want to, you know. And, and that's when I realized that perhaps there is kind of like a, a funnel or a, like a hierarchy. or not, Maybe not hierarchy is not the best one, but maybe like a, like a funnel, right? Whereby you have the masses, then you filter down the opinions of the masses to like perhaps key opinion leaders or representatives of certain communities. Mm -hmm. And then those people are the ones that you want to bring to the table to discuss. And I think that that, that works very well, especially when social media allows for, for, for communities to be formed and for key opinion leaders to arise from those communities online. Mm -hmm. So that's something that I, that I, want, to, I want to bring up as well. Yeah, when, when it comes to the topic. The, your last point kind of um, reminded me of what we you said. Right, um, the role of um, organizations. Right, would you do? You, would you like to comment on that? The role of organizations, or 
essentially people who can get conversations going and help. Um, uh, so as opposed to just you know bring in the masses. That's right, that's yeah. right. So, yeah, so I guess Chilling's organization will definitely speak to your portion. Uh, but yes, a quick add-on, uh, not just organizations, like people like Joel himself, you know, I see you as moderators in deliberation, yeah. really. Yes, yes. Uh, you are the one who actually bring the participants into the discussion space, right? They feel comfortable talking to you. They probably don't feel comfortable talking to people who oppose them, right? Or even the authorities. But you play a perfect role of moderator, of bringing people into the discussion and somehow, you know, um, manage to, to make the discussion uh, go forward in a rather productive way, right? So people don't just turn away and say, you know, we're, we're going to stop talking, right? Uh, that's the same uh, with organizations. Organizations that have been working with the social groups for a long time, right? AWARE, uh, Corinna this morning, AWARE is a great example. They deliberate among themselves, then they also deliberate they push the society to deliberate more on gender issues as well, right? These uh, organizations may play a better role in terms of uh, getting people to join the so-called smaller, safer spaces of deliberation. Mm -hmm. I'll stop there and pass to maybe Chiling to, to, to continue. Right? I think one of the um, things we discussed earlier was around barriers to entry. I think, Erin, you mentioned some of that in terms of how do we compensate people for the time to yeah. uh, come forward and, and engage in these discussions. I think time is probably one of the rarest commodity and, and biggest barrier, right? In Better.SG, we, we have a thousand volunteers, but I, I think when it comes to, to who are the ones who show up for the projects um, and how do we make, how do we really engage them in a productive way, we realize that time is the main uh, bottleneck most times because um, it is costly for someone to make time in, in, in a day among many competing priorities to be engaging uh, on a particular topic. How we try to make it uh, a bit less costly for them is to encourage asynchronous interactions. One reason why youth has been so forthcoming, I think, in social media is because it is asynchronous. Is you don't have to schedule a meeting. I don't have to make a carve out a certain part of my life to participate. I can just hop in and hop out, plug in and plug out anytime. Um, but I think what we lose in that asynchronous interaction is context often. Um, what is really of interest to Better.SG in our recent experimentation is how do we create asynchronous interactions that keep context? rather than lose context. And I think in that space, there's a lot of interesting things we could do with technology. Um, social media with tweets, with TikTok, you've got a few seconds to capture attention. Um, but what if there are tools that allow you to have a much richer understanding of the topic you're engaging with? Um, there are new tools like Loom that's coming online where you could record videos of yourself talking about um, engaging with a topic. Um, and and these sort of asynchronous interactions can actually invite more people to come out in a less costly way uh, without losing context. I think that's the challenge and sweet spot we, we want to work towards. You know, Chilin, just to add to that, right, I completely agree because what those tools allow us to do right, is it, it helps us to think of engagement not just as a single event, right, where you begin and then you end and then you're done, but actually this continuous process where you can keep building relationships. I mean, if we want to go back to the complexity of what both Minister and the earlier panel um, discussed, right? If identities get more complex, then we need to find ways for the complexity and the nuances to emerge. 
And actually, we then need to start mixing in-person interaction with uh, technological tools, you know, whether it's Loom, as you mentioned. I'm a huge Discord fan. I do all my volunteering on Discord because you know, at the height of the circuit breaker last year, groups couldn't meet, right? So we were coordinating on Discord. We found that we needed the, the, the threads, we needed the voice function that was there. It was a bit, way better than WhatsApp was, although WhatsApp was great for you know, kind of immediate pings. So if we can find ways to create these holistic engagements, right, which involve some in-person, some technological tools, some messaging platforms, but some social media interactions. That, I think, is when we start to get to the richness and the range of the human relationships uh, that a full engagement can really allow. That, I think, is when we'll really start to get to grips with the, the range and, and nuances of our identities. Mm. Yeah. So I think the discussion we just had really does look at participation at the um, micro level, at the individual level, right? So I, I, I have a question here, and I think that um, kind mm. of, uh, brings our um, contemplation of the subject to the meso level, right? So, were you earlier you talked about um, different types of deliberation, uh, how effective, smaller, safer deliberations can be, and, and I think that's underpinned uh, obviously by the understanding that these smaller, safer deliberations are done in perhaps uh, smaller, small groups, mm. possibly homogeneous groups. Right, so we have a question here from Hun Cheng, you know, who talked about, who agreed, right, with Joe that there are probably sufficient spaces um, right now that are already created, but these spaces are not interacting or interfacing, right? So how do we bring these different, small, homogeneous, safe groups together, right? Because we are talking about building bridges here. Uh, I, I think that also is linked to the perennial concern about echo chambers um, in social media and in cyberspace. Any, any thoughts about how do you bring different safe small groups together? I, mean, I, I feel like it would be through the representatives of the communities or the, the key opinion leaders. Um, again, it might not necessarily be in the interest of the members of the community themselves to be connected directly to other communities, or at least um, they might not even be like keen on doing that, right? Um, but I do think that uh, exchange of ideas and exchange of opinions and perspectives uh, from community to community is important, and that can be done um, by you know the facilitation of uh, discussions uh, with you know the representatives. I think that has been something that I found uh, like. Uh, something that has worked uh, or mm -hmm. something that I think uh, I appreciate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Were you any thoughts? Yes. So the echo chambers, right? You know, I as an online deliberation scholar, I always wanted to somehow tell down the, the walls, you know, surrounding the echo chambers, right? That's the reason why uh, we built this online deliberation platform, right? Um, we, uh, we, I do think that should be a mechanism, right? The earlier uh, session, uh, I think Joseph talked about, you know, you, we need to need a platform to, to do it, right? Uh, it's hard to, to just tell people then they, they automatically appear in the deliberation. No, there, there needs to be an incentive mechanism, right? Uh, John Gastel, uh, the deliberation scholar, we invited him to Singapore many years ago. He actually had this crazy idea called democracy or deliberation machine. Basically, you know, it will become your 
a regular duty to be part of some kind of innovation, right? For instance, uh, you know, we all have to do volunteer or, you know, we are encouraged by certain mechanisms to volunteer at community centers. We can use those same incentives to encourage people to join some kinds of deliberation that are relevant maybe to your interest. Then, uh, you know, uh, we reward this kind of participation. John Gastel had this <laughs> crazy idea such as, you know, parking vouchers. You know, we all need to park in the city and it's hard, right, sometimes to park for a long time. Parking vouchers as simple as like that to recognize your participation in deliberation. You know, so this so-called separate space, it's that's not the same as social media. I recognize the importance and easy uh, to easiness to use uh, of social media, but social media also has its inherent problems. Other than social media, can we build uh, online platforms that will allow people or encourage people using all these incentives to to join the deliberation? Right. I think we should do that. We have done it once. Right. We hope that we can make it a continuous practice to build it into people's daily so-called volunteering or community life. Mm. Right. So that's, that's what I think. Right. All right. Um, I think we have covered a fair bit uh, from the home to the what to the how. I, I, I don't think this panel um, set out with the bold intention to provide all the answers. Um, maybe I'll just uh, do a quick roundup by asking maybe each of you. Right? So going back to the conference theme of identities, Okay, which um, clearly from the proceedings that have happened since I think 9.30 this morning, um, it's very complex, uh, multiplex, uh, very visceral, right, um, emotional. So um, if I were to ask each of you for just maybe one key takeaway, right, in the work that you do, uh, what is the one thing that um, people who are looking at creating the spaces for trading, you know, can do or should do to for more productive and inclusive conversations on identity. So I will start with Aaron first because after you gave you you kept to time and you gave your remarks, you said that you want to maybe if there's a time you can talk a little bit more about you know um, creating that space for people to express you know themselves and their contradictions. Mm. Yep. So I will start with you and then I will move down. The, you know, whenever I think about how, how we design the, these spaces, I kind of go back to, to something I learned um, when I was in college about you know, the, the great fight between two, two big philosophers. Um, Plato always believed that we can boil things down to essences, right? There's an essence of what a horse is, a chair. There's an essence of chairness. Although this chair looks very different from some of the chairs other people might have, right? Um, and, and there's a very attractive seductiveness about the idea of an essence, but when you apply that to identities, it gets very dangerous, right? What is an essential Indian? What is an essential Chinese person? What is the essential Singaporean? You know? um, those are difficult questions. And, and I, I actually much prefer the approach that, that uh, Wittgenstein takes to this question, right? He doesn't believe in essences. He believes that there are family resemblances. Right? So this chair looks like other chairs because it shares certain qualities with them, but they don't look exactly the same. Um, I, as an Indian, Muslim, um, male, civil servant, person who writes poetry, I have certain family resemblances with other people, but, but we don't share everything. Right? We don't have an essential quality because I know I, I'm an Indian Muslim, there are Indian Hindus, neither of us are less Indian than the other. But you know, the, the, So the family resemblances start to matter a lot more. 
I think if I had to boil a lot of my own you know, thinking about engagement down to a single thing, um, I would really say that we should be thinking far more about recognizing the family resemblances amongst ourselves, because that is what allows us to recognize multiplicity. Um, if you keep going down and saying, you know, I have one group and another group and the groups are not interacting, then we're still falling into the trap of essentialist thinking. We're assuming that these groups are somehow defined by whatever identity they have, right? Um, you know, you mentioned being a zillennial, right, uh, Joel? So I'm, I'm apparently an ex-ennial uh, because I'm born between Generation X and the millennials between 1979 and 1983. So we are characterized by having had analog childhoods but very digital adulthoods. Um, and I have family resemblances with some of those people as well, but also many things that make us different. And I think the more we can recognize those family resemblances, the more we'll be able to find points of commonality with others, but not expect ourselves to be identical to them. And I suspect that will be a good starting point for truly recognizing the range of identities that are out there. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Family resemblances. Yeah. And I think there's so many ways to even interpret family. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Um, were you? Well, uh, I'll be short, right? So uh, um, we talked about in the previous sessions about, you know, how uh, social identity is about let each other be ourselves, right? And leave us, uh, uh, leave each other alone for doing uh, their things in their own lives, right? Basically to uh, encourage people from different identity backgrounds to respect the same concept called humanity. So uh, I probably will end uh, this uh, discussion by encouraging all of us uh, to think about uh, deliberating on topics that really are impacting the humanity right now, right? Uh, how about climate change? How about uh, artificial intelligence? Are these things really just impacting all of us? And maybe that's the best opportunity for all of us to join a discussion based on humanity and also bring in our identity for some consequential discussions. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Right, so um, I just want to say that the, one of the main takeaways for me would be from actually the previous session whereby we talked about um, the acknowledgement of the difference in opinions and also respecting that um, di those differing opinions should exist. Um, so I want to draw, uh, I want to use um, something that we do at Zero Media as, as an example of what I think embodies uh, the kind of discussions that we've been having. So we actually put together a, a talk show, a, a, a discussion show called I Have a Question, whereby we bring together um, different key opinion leaders from different youth communities online um, and then have those leaders, uh, all those uh, individuals, you know, discuss certain topics that, that perhaps have dif uh, see different uh, opinions coming to play. Um, we talked about community level engagement and like with that show, what we do is that before every episode, we decide on a topic and then the, the, the hosts basically engage uh, people on, on the ground level first um, in a very simple, low barrier to entry points uh, to get opinions. And then the key opinion leaders then come on set to discuss it with people who, um, uh, who come from like uh, academic or uh, people who are like, uh, like the involved in, in, the, in the topic itself. So that lies, uh, draws to, to the, the, the topic about um, like moderated conversations um, that I think can perhaps uh, 
like fine-tune the discussions a little bit because on social media things can get crazy very very fast mm -hmm. and um, um, different opinions can come in and whatnot so I do think that um, like a moderation of, of discussions is, is important as well mm. yeah thank you so you highlight the role of key opinion leaders I think in canvassing opinions and yeah. also conveying Correct. those opinions yeah. right, to different stakeholders Correct. and over to you Chiling thank you um, I think a lot has been said today. I, I really learned a lot. If I have to boil down to one um, takeaway or maybe reflection um, is, is that we don't have a shortage of spaces and platforms to engage with each other, um, or not even digital tools, even though I'm in that space. I think that the real shortage might end up being attention and, and focus. When we are engaging, are we really listening to the person across the room or across the table? And are we listening also to the people who are not in the room who haven't been able to show up, um, hear what is said and also what is not said. Um, I, I think there can be a certain fatigue from over-deliberation if we're not careful. And that could lead to a certain kind of disenchantment as well with the process. Um, so I think my, my main reflection is that it's really that we need also responsible moderators and facilitators who don't care about having the last word and they care more about outcomes over winning an argument. Uh, and I think if we have those conditions in place, we should be in a pretty good place. Thank you, Chiling. And I think this also links back to Aaron, your earlier point on showing people that what they do, what they say, have consequences, yeah. that it does not amount to nothing, yeah. right? Absolutely. So thank you so much for all four of you. You know, really, really interesting insights and very useful. Thank you, Dr. Soon and our panellists for the discussion. Ladies and gentlemen, we have now come to the end of the conference. On behalf of IPS and RSIS, I would like to extend my sincere thanks to all the speakers and moderators for their time today. Thank you also to the audience for your active participation in the discussions. I hope that these are conversations we will all continue having after today. Ladies and gentlemen, before you leave, please take a few minutes to complete our feedback form. You may assess the form by scanning the QR code shown on the screen. You can also find a link to the feedback form below. Your feedback will go a long way in helping us improve our programs. Just a reminder that this conference has been recorded and will be available on the IPS website and YouTube page. Thank you very much again for joining us today and have a good afternoon.